The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 15. We are going to begin a famous section of Scripture, the vine and the branch section of Scripture of John 15. Let me say a brief prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, may these words speak to us. May we understand the significance that you are the true vine. And apart from you, we can do nothing. We ask all this in Christ's sake, for your name, for your glory. Amen. Wow, this is just such a momentous and remarkable passage of Scripture for us to understand. It really is breathtaking, the scope of it. It, It's the word that comes to mind as I I think about John chapter 15 and this metaphor that our Lord uses is epic. It's epic. It's just sweeping. It's grand. The, The details are so important. You think about the situation that our Lord is in. It's the final hour. It's the last few minutes that our Lord has with his disciples before he will be arrested in Gethsemane and before he will go to the cross. So every word counts. Everything he says is important. And our Lord thinks that this metaphor of the vine and the branches is so important for his disciples to understand that he must impart it to them in these final moments. If you think about uh, the New Testament, there's multiple metaphors that are used to describe our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. One, our Lord has already given us that he is the good shepherd and we are the sheep. Paul tells us of another one that Christ is the head and we are the body. We are the body. Another one, he says that Christ is the head and we are the church or like the husband is the head of the wife, the Christ is the, the church is the bride of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says that Christ is the great pioneer, the explorer who goes before us, and we are his followers. He also tells us that Christ is the great high priest, and we are the sinners in need of atonement. But here, Jesus gives us this remarkable picture, this remarkable picture of discipleship, that he is the true vine and we are the branches. And we're going to look at this over the next few weeks. So we're not going to exhaust verses 1 to 11 this morning. But let's go ahead and read verses 1 to 11 just so you can get the passage in its context. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Look at verse 1. This is the verse that really defines the rest of the passage. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Underline those first two words, I am. That is a divine statement. If you remember in Exodus chapter 3, when God asked, or when Moses asked God what his name is, God said, I am that I am. And throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven I am statements where he says, I am, and then he fills in the blank. He says, I am, in John 6, the bread of life. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the door into the sheepfold. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. And then seventh and finally, right here, he says, I am the vine. So what's he saying in all these I am statements? He's God. Do not pass go until you understand that. That is the basis of Christianity. Jesus is not a man who assumed deity, you know, who became God whom the Holy Spirit came upon and, and he somehow became God. He's not some created being who is like God. You know, there are many people today, and, and the Mormons come to mind, who claim to worship Christ, but they do not worship him as God. True Christianity begins when we believe that he is the logos of eternity, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's hard to understand how we have one God and three persons. But what Jesus is saying unmistakably right here is that he is the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the burning bush, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is I am. And he says, I am the true vine. Look at those words, true vine. Uh, that, that word, true, appears before the word vine in, in the Greek text. It's an important distinction Jesus is making. And his disciples would immediately understand the Old Testament referent. What Jesus is saying is he's saying here, I am the true Israel. Now stay with me. I'm going to give you some Old Testament passages, and I want you to think like a, like a Jew for a second, like a biblical theologian, all right? Uh, jot these down, or you can turn with me. But in Psalm 80, we just read Psalm 83. In Psalm 80, verse 8, 
the psalmist says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. And then if you skip down to verse 14, he says, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and have regard for this vine. If you turn to the right to the book of Jeremiah, chapter two, verse 21, God says, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? If you keep turning to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 15, it has an extended section on Israel as the vine and their fruitlessness and how they disobeyed God and turned from God. Look at verse 6 of chapter 15 of Ezekiel. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them, though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them, and you will know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, when I set my face against them, and I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. And turn back now to John 15. So Israel is the vine, yet Israel did not produce the fruit that it was supposed to produce. So what Jesus is saying here, when he says, I am the true vine, he's saying, I am the true Israel. I am the embodiment of Israel. I will, on my part, keep the promises, and I will constitute the people of God. Here's what he means by this. Think carefully here. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to know Yahweh, if you wanted to be a part of the people of God, and you were a Moabite, like Ruth was, what would you need to do? You would need to convert, wouldn't you? You would need to come to know Yahweh, and you would need to become part of the people of Israel. You would need to start obeying the laws. You would need to start going to the temple and offering sacrifices. You would have to undergo what was called a proselyte baptism, And then you would have to start obeying the laws. You would need to circumcise the males in your family. All those things, wouldn't you? What Jesus is saying here is that to become a worshiper of Yahweh now, you do not need to join the people of Israel. You need to join Christ, isn't he? He's saying, look, circumcision It's no longer required. The proselyte baptism is no longer required. Now what type of baptism do we do? Christian baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying if, if you want to now be part of the people of God, you now join me. You now need to be united to me. And now this vine will bear fruit. Let me give you an old commentator I came across this week named William Temple. This is what he said. He said, The tree that was planted on Calvary has shoots going out into all the world. By perfectly fulfilling the mission of Israel, he released it from national limitations so that from the cross and resurrection onwards, the chosen people is the community of those whose hearts have received the divine word spoken in him. From that time on, the chosen people 
is the one man in Christ Jesus. So the question is, and this is such an important question, is have you been united to Christ by faith? And if you are united to to Christ by faith, then how the New Testament describes the Christian is simply two words, in Christ. That becomes your fundamental identity. You are, if you are a Christian, in Christ. You've been united to him. Let me give you some some examples of this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Galatians 1.22, Paul says, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12.2, I know a man in Christ. So what began to happen at Pentecost, up until today, 2,000 years, is the gospel went forth and, and is going forth all over the world. And wherever the gospel is preached, what is taking place? People are trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior and being united to Christ in faith. And the vine, the true vine, is spreading out all over the world to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And the prophets prophesied this. Let me give you a, a couple cross-references. Isaiah 27, 6. In days to come, Jake, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. That is what is taking place in the ministry of Christ and the apostles in the church. Zechariah eight twelve, For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit. The vine is going forth and bearing fruit. Now, what I did this week is I just sat down at my desk and I, I, I took a step back and I said, I want to see the whole forest here. And as we begin to embark on this study, I, I wanted to think about, okay, what are just taking a step back, thinking about this, this wonderful metaphor of the vine and the branches, what are some immediate implications that can be guiding truths for our study? And I jotted down five. Let me give these to you. These are big picture items as we begin to think about this. First, being united to Christ in faith is what places you in the vine. It's not on the basis of your genealogy. It's not on the basis of being a Jew or a Gentile or whether you grew up in the church or your parents were missionaries or any of that. The basis of whether or not you are in Christ, in the vine, is faith. Second, being a branch is your identity. He's going to say that Jesus is the vine and you are a branch. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about what that means is, is that we have an identity as Christians of complete dependence. Complete dependence. Branches don't exist on their own. The only way that a branch exists is in its connection to the vine. And that's humbling. What that means is, is that your identity as a Christian, is one of complete dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from him, Jesus says, you can do something? Nothing. Nothing. If you want to produce anything of significance for the kingdom, it's independence. 
And therefore, the posture of the Christian should be humility because we are completely dependent on Jesus Christ. The way that we are saved, by the way, is it 99% Christ and 1% you? No. It's 100% Christ. Christ alone. He is the vine. And all of our life is from him, and all of the grace is from him, by the grace of God. Third, it's an organic relationship. When you think about a vine and a branch, you think of oneness. You think of life, that there's a connection there, isn't there? That it's not, it's not disjointed, that, the, that the, the branch is connected to the vine, and the sustenance that is in the branch comes from the vine, that there is an organic relationship. And so it is if you are a Christian with you and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a remarkable truth to think about, that you are spiritually connected to the Lord Jesus Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus said in John 14, that you are in him and he is in you. That there is a oneness there. And that speaks to the type of fellowship that we are to have with the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are to walk in communion with him. It also means this. This is something that was really fascinating when you read the Acts of the Apostles. Do you remember when Saul was on the Damascus Road and the Lord confronted him? The Lord said to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, what? I've, I was persecuting the churches. No, no, no. When you were persecuting the churches, you were persecuting me, Jesus says, because that's how organically connected we are to our Lord. You are the Lord's. You are in the Lord, and he is in you. Fourth, it's a fruitful relationship. When you think about the branches, the purpose of the branches is to bear fruit. And this fruit is produced through the Lord's work in you. Do you remember what Paul said? Christ in you is the hope of glory. So it's Christ in you producing the fruit in your life that you are supposed to produce. And then fifth, if you think about what the, the fruit of the vine is used for, it's used to produce grapes, grape juice, wine. Those things are associated with joy, joy. At a wedding feast at Cana, they serve wine. At, a, at the end of a long day, it's nice to enjoy a fresh glass of grape juice. It's... <laughs> It's joy. Christ produces joy in your life. The, the, one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And so it, 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 it's dreadfully tragic when you have an Eeyore Christian. Oh, you know, what was me? It's just things are so bad. And it, if you're truly connected to Christ, Christ should be producing this joy in you. Because regardless of these earthly circumstances, your eyes are set on heaven. He, every spiritual blessing is mine in Christ. All of my sins are forgiven. I'm always with Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is in my life. It's the joy that's there. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that joy is what Christ, by his, great, by his grace, produces in your life. 
So over the next few weeks, I'm going to give you six qualities of the vine. And this morning, I think we'll try and get through three of them. All right, so we're going to go through six qualities, and we're, we're going to begin looking at these. So stay with me here. I promise the Lord will bless you immensely as you really understand this, okay? So the first quality that I want you to see is the purification of the vine. The purification of the vine. Look back at verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, we've already covered Jesus' statement, I am the true vine. But now notice this statement regarding the first person of the Godhead, the first person of the Trinity, the Father. He says the Father is the sovereign vine dresser. He's the gardener. He's the, the farmer. He's the one that tends to the vine. I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Isaiah chapter 5, Yahweh is presented as the gardener of Israel, that he is the one that brought Israel into the land, that he is the one that tends to the vine, that... that that works sovereignly to produce fruit. And this picture is what God the Father does in the life of the church. God the Father, before the foundation of the world, elected those who would be saved. John three sixteen. the Father is the one who does what? Sends the Son. The Father is the one, John fourteen sixteen. who sends the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, God is the one who is sovereign over time and space, and God is the one who is sovereign over the church. God is the one who tends the vine. Now, what you'll see is that in the vine, there are two types of so-called branches, and, and one is a real branch, and one is a fraudulent branch, a pseudo-branch. There are false branches, and there are true branches, and the false branches represent false disciples, phony disciples, and the true branches represent real disciples. And the Father's response to each is different. The Father removes false disciples, and the Father prunes true disciples. So we're going to, by purification, I want us to look at how the Father removes false disciples. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, this, I am sure of, represents professing Christians. This is a, a, a type of person that has some sort of contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, somebody who claims to be a disciple but is not a genuine disciple. It is a false conversion. It's someone who probably thinks they are saved because they made a profession of faith at some point, yet they are not actually part of the true vine. What God does, and this is, Jot down this Greek word, aero, A-I-R-O, is he cuts them off. He sovereignly removes them. Uh, that same verb is used 
in the parable of the sower after the, the seed is sown to describe how Satan comes and takes away the seed that falls on the path. He comes and takes it away. He comes and cuts it off. Uh, the same verb is also used in a positive way in Colossians 2.14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this Christ set aside, this Christ cut off nailing it to the cross. In other words, when Christ died on the cross for his children, he cut off the sin debt that they owed. Well, Jesus uses this same word to describe what the Father does to the false branches. He cuts them off. We'll see in verse 6 what happens to them. Now, one time I was, I was teaching a theology class in Ukraine in Venitsa Bible College, and somehow we came to this passage and th these group of pastors were almost all Arminians. Now, an Arminian is not somebody from Armenia, okay? An Arminian is someone who holds the theology of a guy named Jacob Arminius. And what that theology teaches, ultimately, is that you can lose your salvation, that your salvation is not necessarily secure, that you can become a Christian, and then you can lose your Christianity, that you can be on the path to heaven and then all of a sudden you can lose it and you can be on the path to hell. And all of a sudden I found myself in a huge argument with about 20 students talking through a translator where they were saying, and they turned to this passage and they said, see, it's right here. Jesus has branches that the Father removes and then verse six, the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. There it is. You have people right there that are Christians that lose their salvation. And I wanna spend a little bit of time on this because this is really important. The Bible teaches that once you are a Christian, you are always a Christian. Once you have eternal life, because it's eternal, you can never lose it. And so what Jesus is referring here to is not the true Christian, but the false Christian. I want to prove it to you. I want to show it to you. First, Jesus' other statements, which are very clear on this matter, make it clear that a true Christian cannot lose their salvation. For example, jot this down, John six thirty nine. This is the will of him who sent me, that's the Father, that I should lose nothing, nothing of all that he has given me and raise it up on the last day. He will lose nothing that the Father gives him. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, listen, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Sound like you can lose your salvation? No, absolutely not. This is what the, the rest of the New Testament teaches. I'm just gonna give you a couple verses. Paul says, Romans 8, 29. This is called the golden chain of salvation. Those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
This is called the golden chain of salvation because you can trace the same people all the way from the beginning to the end. Those whom he foreknew in the end are the same people that he glorified. Same group. You, you can't be justified and then later not be justified and not glorified. It's a golden chain because it depends on God, on the sovereignty of God and not us. Philippians 1.6. Look at this. Oh, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If he starts the work of salvation in you, he will bring it to completion. Third, the immediate context. Look at verse eight. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And look at this. So prove to be my disciples. The fruit is the proof that you're the real disciple. Those who don't bear fruit, they prove that they're not real disciples. So they're never Christians to begin with. They're never true disciples. Fourth, the broader context. What Jesus is addressing here is what? Judas has just left. Judas has gone out. So Jesus is saying, look, there's a distinction here. There's a distinction between the 11 and the one. The 11, these are the fruit-bearing branches. This Judas is the one who did not bear fruit. He is cut off. It's shown that he's not a true disciple. And then fifth, the analogy itself. The whole point that Jesus is making is that true branches that are connected to the, to the vine inevitably do what? Bear fruit. That's the whole point. So, no, Jesus is not saying that these so-called branches at the beginning are Christians losing their salvation. They're people who claim to be Christians, who God sovereignly at some point cuts off, who, who God brings to the forefront where the church, where people realize that they were phony disciples, that they were pretenders. Remember in John chapter 6, when Jesus says the bread of life discourse, at the very end, it says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And then you have Judas. You have this reality of people who express faith, and then they depart. Remember Matthew 7. Jesus says on the last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not work miracles in your name? Did we not do all sorts of stuff in your name? And Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. You were never really attached to me. You were never a true vine. And I find that reality right there such a sobering reality. Because I know in a church this size, that's some of you, that you've worn the Jesus t-shirt, but it's just been that. It hasn't been genuine faith. So you need to take a step back and ask yourself, am I really united to Christ in faith? And the evidence of that is that you bear fruit and that you are faithful. You are faithful, that you keep with it. John says, 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not 
of us. What God does over time is he purifies the church. You think you're running with somebody, and then all of a sudden, and I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in this church. You start having a a conversation with someone, and they say, you know, I'm really not sure that the Bible is inerrant. I'm really not sure that I can understand the cross as a substitutionary death. I'm really not sure in a bodily resurrection. When that conversation starts happening, watch out. And I've seen people depart. What God is doing there in his sovereignty is he's pruning. He's pruning, pruning the church. I knew a pastor, uh, a guy named Josh Harris. Anybody recognize that name? He wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. The Christian world ate it up. Over a million copies sold. A few years ago, this pastor said, he was a pastor. He said, you know what? I don't believe it. I'm out. I renounce it. I don't believe that Jesus is God. I don't, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe any of it. What God is doing there, it's tragic, but what, what God is doing there is he's bringing unbelief to the surface. God is sovereignly pruning the church. Now he prunes, or he, he, he purifies, I should say, and second, he prunes. Look at the second part of verse two. This is also God's sovereign work, is he prunes. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Ooh, this is a good verse, but this is a tough verse. I mean, you, uh, you read this and you're like, yo! I love it, but I don't love it. This is, this is a, a tough reality, but it's a true reality, and it's a reality that we need to grapple with, grapple with. That God's desire is that every branch, true branch, bears fruit. That you are saved, not just for the purpose of having a ticket into heaven, but you are saved for a specific reason, that you would bear fruit for the glory of God. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God saved you so that you would do good works. And then this is amazing, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's not only predestination to salvation, it's predestination to good works, that God predestined that you would do these good works that you were supposed to do, that you would produce this fruit. Now, one of the questions that I had this week is I jotted down in my notes, what is fruit? What is fruit? What, is, what does Jesus mean when he says that the good branches are to produce fruit and the Father's working that we might produce fruit? And I went and did a study, and, and basically the New Testament describes this fruit five ways. Let me give this to you. First, the fruit is good works which are evident evidence of faith. Good works, which are evidence of faith. In the parable of the sower, Jesus says that the, the good seed fell in the good soil, and that soil, it was, it was seen to be good soil because it produced grain, some 100-fold, some 60-fold, some 30-fold. Jesus's point is that every genuine Christian will produce fruit, that true faith always produces fruit. Good works, in Christ's name, that is the uh, evidence and the result of saving faith. Second, 
It's spiritual virtues, spiritual virtues in your life, part of your character. This is Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law that the Holy Spirit works this virtue and this character in your life so that you begin to become more like Christ. The third type of fruit that is evident in your life is acceptable worship. Acceptable worship. That your life becomes a worshiping life. And all of life is worship, is it not? All of life is worship. All of life is lived to his glory. Now there are times where we come together and we have corporate worship like we're doing now. And when you come together in corporate worship, the hope and prayer is that you are bringing a life that's a living sacrifice to God. And then from your lips come to God is, is true praise to him. And, and God describes true worship as a fragrant aroma to him. Have you ever thought about that? That, that our worship is pleasing in the heart of God. That God loves true worship. That it's a wonderful thing. This is the most important thing that we could do is offer true worship to God. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 13, 15, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Fourth, the fruit that we produce are saved people, that we win people to Christ through evangelism. Colossians 1.6, the gospel which has come to you is in, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing so part of the fruit that, that we produce by God's grace is seeing other people come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then fifth, peacemaking. We bring peace wherever we go. We bring the peace of the gospel, that people can be reconciled to God, that we bring the peace of forgiveness. James 3.18, he says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what does the Father do so that we bear this fruit, that we bear more fruit? The Greek word is katharo. And, and the reason why I mention that word is because, one, there's an important English word that we get from that, catharsis. It means cleansing or purifying. And two, because the same word that was used to describe the unbeliever being cut off is found in this word. It's kath-aro. The, the, the first word that used to describe the cutting off of the unbeliever was aro. Here it's kath-aro. So the unbeliever's completely cut off. Here it's a purifying cut. It's a cleansing cut. It's a cut so that we would bear more fruit. And you think about if, you know, I know that there's a lot of uh, gals in here who, who garden, you know, and when you trim back a bush, it's, you're making the bush smaller, you're making the bush uh, uh, shorter, you're, you're trimming back excess branches, all for the purpose that ultimately it would grow and bear more flowers, more fruit in the end. And what Jesus is saying is, is that's what God the Father does with us. I want you to turn with me, and I want everybody, if you have a Bible, these verses are so important, I want you all to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 
7. Writer of Hebrews says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if you aren't being pruned, you're not a son. Did you get that? If you're not being pruned, you're not a son. If you're not being disciplined, you're not a, you're not, you're not a true child of God. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Now look at this. this no truer words have ever been said. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, look at, look at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. You go through trials all the time. Dark nights of the soul. And you ask, you get down on your knees and you ask, why me, God? Why me? Why me? Why not them? I've been trying to, to do it the righteous way. They don't honor you. They're having that nice thing going on. I'm in the dark night of the soul. What in the world is going on? Those whom he loves, he disciplines. God often prunes us through affliction, through trials, through difficulty. Let me give you the, the Prince of Preachers, Spurgeon. Much of our Lord's purging work is done through afflictions. Oh, of one kind or another. It is not the evil, but the good who have the promise of tribulation in this life. Did you hear that? Man, I, I thought I was signing up for the, the gravy train. No, no, no. You signed up for the discipline. He says, but then the end makes more than full amends for the painful nature of the means. If we produce more fruit for our Lord, then we will not mind the pruning and the loss of foliage. So oftentimes, your valley is setting up the mountaintop of fruit. And I, and I, and I mean the mountaintop in the biblical sense of holiness and righteousness. That your trial is building in to the fruit that you are going to produce in the kingdom. So it's important that we maintain perspective that we maintain perspective. Jonathan Edwards, famous pastor at Northampton, and this is, this is up in, in Connecticut. Uh, first great awakening ever heard of his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
the, the, one of the greatest preachers and thinkers America has ever known. Jonathan Edwards was asked to leave his church by the congregation. Huh. Greatest preacher in American history. They, you know, you're just not doing it for us. There's a little bit of a controversy, and, and they asked him to leave. And then they had the audacity. They couldn't find somebody to fill the pulpit. They had the, the audacity to ask him to keep preaching for another year. So they fired him. They asked him to keep preaching. And he takes his nine kids out to the wilderness to Stockbridge and becomes a missionary to the Mohican Indians. But while he was there, guess what he did? He wrote three of his most famous treatises, Freedom of the Will, Nature of True Virtue, things that people are reading today and being edified. You see, God took him to the wilderness where he would have the time to produce the fruit that God wanted him to produce. So you might be in the wilderness right now, but know that God is sovereign Begin to ask these questions. Let me give you some questions to ask. Is there something in my life that does not conform to God's standard of righteousness? Is there something in my life that does not conform to God's standard of righteousness? Is there something more that I should be doing for the kingdom that I am not doing right now? Am I using my time wisely? Am I using my time wisely? Ask those questions. And then get on your knees and say, God, show me the light. Show me the light. Show me the light. And you keep being faithful. And in your faithfulness, you trust God. You trust God. He is the vine dresser. And you know what? He's omniscient. It's not like he's on another part. I know it sometimes feels this way. You're like, he's tending to other vines. You know, he's tending to other branches. He's gone. He's on a different part of the garden. No, he's not. He's right there. He's tending to you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All right, third thing I want you to see this morning so we saw the, the purification of the vine. We saw the pruning of the vine. And third, the grafting of the vine. Look at verse three. Already, he's talking to the 11, remember? Judas is gone. He says, already you are clean. You are purified because of the word that I've spoken to you. Remember, this is in the context. He's just said that, that he cleanses the, the branches, but he's saying, at your core, you are already clean. Uh, in this context, and, and I get this from Romans chapter 11, he's saying, you've been grafted into the true vine. You've been grafted into me. This is Romans 11, 11 17. It says, this is talking about Gentiles, but this is the same principle. He says, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. And Jesus is saying, you are clean, you are grafted in, you are in me. And the reason I know that is if you turn over to John chapter 13, you remember this is when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, and 
there's Peter asked a question. Uh, this is verse six. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. The, the washing of the feet was representative of what Christ would do for them on the cross. That as he washes their feet, so he washes them through his blood. All right, verse eight. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash, wash you, you have no share with me. If you're not purified by my blood, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, listen, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. It's a symbol. Jesus is saying this whole thing is a symbol. And now look what he says. And you are clean, but not every one of you, because Judas is still in the room. So the disciples are clean. They've, been, they've already been added into the, the vine, but Judas is not, and that's why Judas leaves. So they are grafted into the vine, they are cleansed, and this is done, if you turn back to, to John 15, look at look what he says. You are clean, look at the rationale because of the word that I've spoken to you. Oh my goodness. What, what a remarkable statement. You are in me. You believed because of the word that I spoke to you. The word of God, and, and I feel like this is one of, one of the basis points of my ministry, is that I believe that the word of God is powerful that it's God's word. And what that means is that God's word has a supernatural capacity with it. That when you hear God's word, you encounter God. And God begins to do a work in your life. God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That God's word is not a dead book. And God's word, just as the world was created when God said, let there be light, God's word creates light in your soul. And therefore, what you need most is the word of God. And the way that you are joined to Christ, you can't join yourself to Christ in a million years. Christ must join you to him, and the way he does that is through his word. His word is spoken, the word of truth, the word of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit uses his word to create light in you where you are united to him. Let me give you, this was prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament Deuteronomy 30, 14. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 23, you've been born again, not of per perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. God. You remember Elijah? He called down fire from heaven after the prophets of Baal failed to do so. And the fire came down. And then Elijah took the prophets of Baal and he slaughtered them at the base of Mount Carmel. And then he got scared of Jezebel and Ahab and he fled. 
And he went all the way down to Mount Sinai, to Mount Horeb, to the mountain of God, where Moses had met with God on the mountain. Climbed up the mountain, kind of had a pity party, pity party moment. He said, God, what am I to do? And the presence of God showed up. The presence of God showed up. And there was a wind that tore the mountain apart. Boulders flying everywhere. And yet Elijah said that God was not in the wind. And there was an earthquake that shook the mountain. And yet God was not in the earthquake. And there was a scorching fire over the surface of the mountain. And Elijah said that God was not in the scorching fire. But then there was a still small voice. And that's where God's presence was. It was in the word. It was in the voice. And so what the word of God does, the word of the gospel, is it cleanses your soul. It cleanses your soul. It creates faith. It gives the new birth. It purifies. That's what the word of God does because God is active in the word. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which is the good news, the good word. It is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and to the Greek. The power of the new life is in the word. It's in the word of God. So you have people, you have people, and they're trying to deal with their mess. They're trying to deal with the shame of the past, broken relationships, drugs, sleeping around, all sorts of idolatry. They're trying to deal with that. You can't deal with that on your own. Uh, country song I used to listen to. Uh, I went and saw a, a group in college, Cody Canada. The song was called Sick and Tired. He says, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. <laughs> he says, memories, they're overrated. All they do is get you down and frustrated. Who needs that on, on their back? He says, I'm starting over, cold turkey, washing your soul of everything that's dirty, sill your heart of every crack. You can't wash your own soul. You need the word to cleanse you. You need the gospel to save you. Some of you this morning, you're here this morning because God knew that you needed to hear this. And you're here because you need to be cleansed you need to be washed. Paul says, Ephesians 5, 26, that he might sanctify his church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Give up on trying to cleanse yourself. Give it up. You won't do it. You can't do it. The only way to purify your souls with the blood of Christ, and you receive that by believing his word. Do you believe? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Look to him in faith, all you to the ends of the earth, and you will be saved. Hear the word of God and live. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and in this moment you will be forgiven of all your sins. You will be as white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, so is your sin from you. 
Some of you right now, I'm pleading with you. Don't leave today if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. His word cleanses your heart. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would do this purifying work in our hearts, that you would cleanse souls through the word of God. We believe, Lord, that you are present with us, that you are sovereign, that you are the vine dresser, that you are at work, and that your word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Cleanse us, Lord. Purify us. I know it's painful. I know it's painful. But Lord, we want to be clean. We want to be pure. We look to you with faith. Do this work in our hearts. For our sake and your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.